It's usually at this time that I say, I invite you to open your Bibles, and it's almost funny to, to not say that, at least right away, um, because if uh, you weren't here last week, or if you just needed a bump on this, we are tonight starting a mini-series outside of the book of Philippians. We will look at some verses in Philippians even tonight, and even over the next few weeks, but we are beginning a mini-series on the topic of humility. And this week as I was preparing, there's a mixture of excitement and pain as I see my own sin and uh, even sort of a weary sort of awareness of uh, how much repenting and grace and mercy and growth is ahead, Lord willing, for our ministry even in these next few weeks. Um, and so before we begin, as we approach this topic of humility, uh, I want to preface up front that our study for a couple of these weeks will be a little bit different than usual in that uh, we won't be like we normally are, uh, opening our Bibles and shaping our thinking around one text of Scripture. Uh, as we study this important topic of humility, my hope is that, first and foremost, you will hopefully find it helpful to your growth in humility, uh, but uh, my hope is also that you will find it instructive as an example of how to think categorically about a principle found not just in one passage, but throughout Scripture. And so there will be uh, lots of Bible flipping and lots of reasoning through what the Scriptures have to say and all of that as we seek to anchor our understanding of what humility is and why it's so important and anchor it ultimately on still the very Word of God. So having said that, uh, open your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 66. I want to begin there by framing our study of humility. Isaiah 66. It's right in the middle of your Bible. If you haven't used your ribbon markers since you got your Bible, it might be on that page. And Isaiah 66, the very last chapter of that great prophet. I want to look at verses 1 and 2 to begin our time. Isaiah 66, looking at, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Our aim tonight and in these next few weeks is that we would gain this kind of understanding. First, a right view of who God is and how all things are from his hand. Uh, but then also how the benefit and the blessing and the great help of the God whose throne is heaven and whose footstool is the earth 
is found by those who before him are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. That is our goal, to gain this kind of understanding and worldview and way of living found in Isaiah 66. So let's pray to that end because we need God's help in this. Pray with me. Father, we come to you now asking for your help because we know that even in our attempts to cultivate a heart of humility, we can be prideful, even in that. So I ask tonight, Lord, that you give us much grace. By your Spirit's work, would you open our hearts and illumine our minds as we look to your word. In Christ's name, amen. The world-renowned conductor and composer, Leonard Bernstein, was once asked what the most difficult instrument in the orchestra was to play. And Bernstein famously said this, the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. GOC, isn't that a profound and telling parallel to our need for the rare virtue of humility? In the terms of Bernstein, a willingness to play second fiddle. See, in contrast to the humility that our passage in Philippians last week describes as counting others more significant than yourselves and looking not only to your own interests but to the interests of others. We live in a world of first violinists, of rock stars, of entrepreneurs. As a culture, we are defined by a sense of individualism and independence. We are self-made and self-sustaining and there's no negotiation about it. Yet as we have seen in Philippians, the core of a life worthy of the gospel is that of a unified witness. God's people together in harmony displaying the worth of the gospel. We are to, as Paul says in that passage, be of the same mind or having the same love or being of full accord, literally of one soul with one another. And we saw last week the key to that kind of unity is humility. It's humility. The key to the gospel oneness, the tenacity for gospel progress, the key to that kind of harmony between you and me and each other is that we are devoted to exercising humility toward one another. That we ought to regard one another as more highly than ourselves and that we are to see each other's needs and look to meet those needs and even make sacrifices along the way. This humility, which by Paul's logic in Philippians is not only the key to our unity, 
but also to then our joy is certainly worth a closer look. And it's worth a closer look because I believe that as a ministry and as individual Christians as well, if we would make strides in our growth in humility, it will have a wonderful and fruitful effect on a great many aspects in our lives and in the lives of everyone around us. Theologian John Stott says it this way, at every stage of our Christian development, And in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. At every stage of Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship. You see, to grow in humility would be to grow in godliness and maturity as a whole and Therefore, set the stage for growth in godliness and maturity for the rest of our lives. For the Christian, humility is the lens through which we ought to see all of life. It's the foundation, so to speak, on which you build your character and on which you make your decisions and on which you cultivate your relationships. And so on the front end, I want to give you a working definition of humility Uh, to frame our series over the next few weeks. It's a working definition because I reserve the right to uh, add to it or modify it as I learn just as you are. Um, But let's start with this working definition. Humility is the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing oneself in view of God, others, and the gospel. Let me give you that again. Humility is the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing oneself in view of God, others, and the gospel. Now, some of you are tonight, and maybe throughout your lives, keenly aware of your own pride. And you diligently seek to weed out your pride and grow in humility. And I hope, that my prayer is that this series simply serves to spur you on in that regard. In the direction that you may already be headed. And perhaps to embolden you to continue killing your pride and pursuing humility. But others of you, I would venture to guess, might be a little bit mystified as to why we're doing a study on humility, wondering who this is for. And that's exactly why we're doing it. This is for you. This is for me. This is for everyone in this room. We need it. You've probably heard the phrase, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Maybe you heard it from the news talking about the housing market or the news talking about a tropical storm or maybe your biochem TA talking about the quarter. Uh, The idea is it's going to get worse before it gets better uh, or it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, The idea is you need to go through the ringer before you get to the other side of this thing. Well, that's where we are tonight as we seek to understand humility 
You see, we need to first, in our pursuit of humility, undergo the pain of recognizing our own pride before we, be, we can begin that pursuit of humility. And so tonight, our entire time is devoted to looking at humility's greatest enemy, pride. First, as we look at humility's greatest enemy, pride, let's look at the danger of pride. The danger of pride. And you'll see what I mean by that in a second, but it's what pride does. The danger of pride is what pride does. The reason why in our flesh we don't want to pursue humility. Uh, The reason why humility, even if we do want to pursue it, is so difficult. The reason is pride. The greatest enemy to Christian humility is our own pride. And pride is your and my natural inclination to to seeking glory for ourselves. Our sense of self-importance, our bent toward exalting ourselves. In our pride, we create an alternate reality in our hearts, and we put on the throne, at the center, ourselves. And then we make continual provision, day by day and moment by moment, to operate and maintain that thing on the throne that is ourselves. And we look to maintain this self-centered, self-important existence that we've created. You see, instead of rightly assessing ourselves before God, others, and the gospel, in our pride we very simply disregard God, others, and the gospel and assess ourselves inaccurately, namely, more highly than we ought to. Turn to Romans 12. It's a phrase taken from Romans 12, verse 3. It's a helpful way to frame our discussion of humility and pride. Romans 12, verse 3. Now, it's a positive command to live a certain way, but it's a helpful way to define pride tonight. Romans 12 and verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, we'll get to that sober judgment in a few weeks, but for now, even that phrase, to not, to, uh, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, is a helpful just succinct biblical definition of what pride is. You see, we think we're the best. We think we know the most. In fact, our pride goes so as far to, sit, to think we run the fastest, and we kick the hardest, and we score the most goals, and we study the hardest easily, and we wash the dishes the cleanest even. We, on top of all of that, can accomplish anything we want to. 
that is what our pride does to us, reasonable and unreasonable. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, even when things don't matter. And at that, we scoff at anything or anyone who limits or challenges those assertions. And the effect is devastating, because unless you live in a vacuum, your pride has a significant impact on others around you. See, the danger of pride is not just to your own soul. It is to the effect and the danger of those around you as well. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, points out this interpersonal aspect to pride, how it skews our relationships and gets us to view those around us with a certain kind of contempt. How it drives us, pride does, to a spirit of competition in everything and some sort of ugly game of comparison with others. He says it this way, I think so plainly. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. And then he observes, interestingly, this. He says, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Profound words from C.S. Lewis. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, by comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we are boasting trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because we are desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is so busy, so busy all the time. You see, our pride is why we can't admit we're wrong. It's why we don't forgive others and why we don't defer to others. It's why we don't care about others. And in fact, instead, why we judge others. It's what drives us to put in the airplugs and only think about ourselves. Uh, maybe your pride, though, isn't as overt. It's, it's sneakier. And it manifests itself instead in insecurity or self-pity. Maybe your pride is a more secret sense of superiority, a quiet judgmentalism, the kind that only you know about. But whether our pride is obvious or not, our pride is the reason why we don't depend on the Lord in prayer. It's why we don't think first of, what's, of what God's Word has to say about something that we think we know better about. Our pride is the reason why we ignore godly counsel or why we don't even seek counsel to begin with. It's why, even as Christians, we are guilty of living a godless existence. Because in our pride, 
we think our way is better than God's way. That's the danger of pride. It's what pride does is it gets us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to ever think. Now I think the danger of pride is why there is so much instruction in Scripture that directly addresses our pride, telling us to put on humility. You can write these references down, no need to turn to them, but I just want to give you a taste of what's to come and even help now as we think of our pride. Romans 12, verse 10, later in that same chapter that we read from earlier, it says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That's a humble endeavor. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Or Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then a verse you should recognize, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the danger of pride. It's what it does. It causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and it puts others in jeopardy because of what we think of them compared to us, namely lower than us. And yet God's Word, even just in these past few minutes, instructs us and shows us the way of righteousness. And that's the way of humility. So that's the danger of pride. Let's look at then the definition of pride. This is what it is. It's what pride is. C.S. Lewis calls pride the essential vice. And he also calls it the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards calls it the worst viper that is in the heart. And elsewhere he calls it the great disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. And then Charles Bridges, famous pastor, uh, says it this way, he calls pride contending for supremacy with God and lifting up our hearts against him. You see, in pride, you and I place ourselves on the throne where God ought to be. In pride, we put ourselves in a place where God should be. We worship ourselves and our opinions and our abilities instead of looking to God who gave us those things and worshiping Him. A God whose throne is in heaven and whose footstool is earth, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1.17. He alone is worthy of praise and honor. Look at Romans 11. If you're in Romans 12, just look back a little bit. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has, been, 
who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Consider Revelation 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, these truths of Romans 11 and Revelation 5 ought to place godly fear and wonderment and worship in the heart of the believer. And yet, you and I, in our pride, instead think worthy, worthy, worthy is me. Instead of God, instead of the worthy Lamb being on the throne and at His right hand, it is us by ourselves. It's a me thing. So to understand our pride correctly is to understand that our pride is a sinful power grab at the honor and praise that is due only to God. In our pride, instead of honoring the God who is worthy, we honor ourselves. We place subtle and maybe not so subtle focus on ourselves and we label it self-respect or self-care or self worth. And yet all these things are simply rehearsals and manifestations and defense mechanisms of the pride that is so deeply ingrained in our hearts. These are vain and empty attempts at dethroning God and stealing the glory that is due His name. This is what Isaiah 14 describes of Satan. Turn there, Isaiah 14. And it illustrates for us the unchecked, unhindered arrogance of pride and how it is fundamentally, first, a sin against God. Isaiah 14. Look at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This is pride. This is saying in your heart, I will make myself like God. And then all of your thoughts and actions and deeds, all of your machinations and manipulations fall in line with that endeavor of making yourself like God. And even if making yourself like God is in just one aspect of your life, or maybe it's just in regards to how others might view you. Think even of the first sin. In the garden, Satan tells Eve, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? And Satan says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And of course, as we know, she takes the fruit and eats and gives to Adam, and he takes the fruit and eats. In our pride, we somehow know, like Adam and Eve did, we know better than God somehow. Uh, We are shades of King Nebuchadnezzar as he considers Babylon and looks over and says, look at what my hands have made. Uh, We are shades uh, of uh, Satan in Isaiah, and we are shades of Adam and Eve. In Satan's fall and in the fall of man, And with Nebuchadnezzar, we see the pattern of what pride does. And how, in a sense, there is pride in all of our sin. There's a multiplying effect to pride. You see, pride sets the stage for all kinds of high-handed rebellion against God. We think we know better than God. We want to know more than God. We are sure then that we know better than God in some cases. And being sure that somehow we are better off without the almighty, all-wise, eternal God. That is what pride is. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. Now let's look at the destruction of Pride. We've looked at the danger of pride, and then we've just defined pride. Let's look at the destruction of pride. This is what happens to the proud. Now, is there a food that you absolutely cannot stand? You hate it. Discussions of pride aside, could you give a lengthy speech with multiple points about why this food should not exist? What food do you despise? Maybe it's lima beans or baby carrots or mushrooms, at least the squishy kind. What food do you hate? Well, how you feel about lima beans or carrots or mushrooms is how God feels about pride, but to the nth degree. You see, God hates pride. And God hates pride not because it's gross, but because it is an affront to him. Look at Proverbs 6. Turn to Proverbs 6. There Solomon describes seven things that God hates in the middle of Proverbs 6. We're not going to read the whole thing, but Proverbs 6 verse 16 is the beginning of that list. It's six things that the Lord hates and then It says seven that are an abomination to him. It's a literary structure that emphasizes there are seven things total, but the very last thing is the thing that the Lord hates the most. In this case, one who sows discord among brothers in verse 19. But look at this list in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the very first thing, haughty eyes. The very first thing 
out of the writer's mouth is haughty eyes. A spirit of superiority that looks down on others and says, I'm better. Look at Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. God says. 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6 are two twin verses that we referenced last week and we will allude to and look at again and again in this series. Those two verses help us keep the forefront of our minds the important truth we need to remember from God's Word about the paradox of pride and humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is a verse that we all ought to commit to memory because it is so simple and it's a simple check on our hearts when we feel pride bubbling up in our hearts to simply recite and rehearse this truth. Scripture is clear. God hates pride. He opposes the proud. Scripture, though, is also not shy about the end result of pride, the destruction of the proud. You're in the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 16. Look at 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. The promise of destruction of the proud. Look at 16:18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Think of the words of Jesus himself, the paradox of pride's miserable end. It's in Matthew 23 uh, and in the other gospels as well. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's truth we find in the Old Testament as well. Again, in Isaiah, look at Isaiah chapter 2. It's a, it's a helpful look at this paradox of pride and humility and humiliation and exaltation. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 and verse 11. The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, 
and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Grace on campus, the danger of pride in its destruction is not just that some kind of Christian karma will happen to us. That if we're proud that we won't get what we want or we will fail a math test because God is punishing us for our pride. The danger of pride is far greater than that in its destruction. It's that God Himself is opposed to it. And the danger of pride in its destruction is that habitually and characteristically, pride is indicative of a heart not submitted to God, a self-exalted, unredeemed heart. And it's a heart that in eternity will face the eternal destruction and humiliation promised in Scripture. So we've just seen in Isaiah 2. And even for the Christian, the hypocrisy of pride is that in knowing Christ, we claim allegiance to Him. And we say, we are going to submit our lives to You, O Lord. You have saved us. Thank You. And yet in the vestiges of our pride that still exist in our flesh, we hold back the humble submission that is due Him. And we take His glory and give it to ourselves. And we let pride rear its ugly head in so many ways in our lives, and we let it run free. As we begin our journey in understanding and pursuing humility, it's important that we've carefully considered this reality of pride in our lives. That we understand very clearly that it is an affront to God. And that we understand very clearly how it affects our relationships with others. Oh, the ugliness and the pervasiveness of our pride. One famous pastor puts it this way, the real issue is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. Just a few years ago, I was in seminary, at school, and I remember a conversation I would have over and over again with my friends in class, and uh, you know seminarians, besides Riley, uh, they can be a proud bunch sometimes, and I was one of them, and there are many things in seminary to be wrongfully proud about. You're growing in knowledge. You're hopefully being more godly and growing in holiness. And if you're not checking yourself, it would be easy to be proud about those things. And I remember several times the irony of the conversation would come to this idea of let's talk about how we're serving and what we're doing and how many ways that we're sacrificing our time to love the Lord and serve the church. And I thought that was the pinnacle of irony until I realized uh, one of the repeated things that we would talk about uh, during class breaks was we would have a discussion about how little we had slept last night. Oh, I, I barely, man, like I'm serving, and so I got six hours of sleep. 
and the night, the night before, it was even harder. I had to do that paper that we're all, you know, working on, and I got four hours of sleep that night. And then the other guy would chime in and say, man, like, I, I'm married, so, I, you know, I had to also help with my kids, and I, mean, I, had, I got two hours that one night. And, and the irony of our pride, uh, finding any way to brag about ourselves, I think that's not just for seminarians. I think that's all of us. I think we find any and every way to think about how we've experienced the hardest thing or how we're the best at something or how we are working the hardest out of anyone. And we even claim that it's stewardship or we think that that's faithfulness or we do all of that to defend and deflect and carry on our pride the ugliness and the pervasiveness of our pride. In our pride, we will take anything and turn it into a competition. We will take even things maybe, ought, maybe that we ought to change or even that we ought to be ashamed of, and we turn those things into something to brag about. For the Christian, this ought not to be. That we must seek to eliminate pride uh, that so pervasively ensnares us. And so I ask you tonight, where is the pride in your life? Not just is there pride, but I hope you can believe me, humbly ask you, where is the pride in your life? What forms does it take? Uh, Are there areas, pockets, corners of your life that you have compartmentalized. You've sealed those parts of your heart off. You've reserved them for your pride to run free. Allowing self to rule and reign where maybe Christ should. Maybe it's in how you think about your career because nobody else could understand. I'm going to, into such a unique field. Or maybe it's in the fact that you're dating and maybe no one else understands what me and him or me and her have. Uh, We're special, we're unique, we're growing in these ways and your pride creeps in there. And maybe in all of its ugly irony, it's the pride you have in your ministry involvement. The pride may be that you might have in being the first one to be here and the last to leave. It's maybe the pride that you have in getting to teach every week or the pride that you might have in doing things that no one else gets to because you're the one that God's gifted that way. Maybe your pride isn't the overt kind. It quietly compares. It finds things to be proud about. Instead of recognizing and rejoicing with those around you that they're gifted in ways that you're not, you quietly and maybe even in your mind humbly think, I don't have much to be proud about, but at least there's these simple things. And you come up with silly things and even nonsensical things to feel superior about. Maybe it's you make the best coffee in the apartment (laughs) or... Yeah, I mean, I kind of carry the team during IMs. Or, well, my PR is at least on par with his. Or maybe tell how many plates you eat in the dining hall. It could be the silliest of things. 
Uh, no matter how you find a way to count others less significant than yourself. Maybe as we talk about pride and you examine your own life, your pride isn't outwardly braggy like this. It may be your pride instead manifests itself in silent envy, in the quiet of your own room, in your thought life. You, you see what others have and you see what others do and you see what others enjoy and this sense of prideful judgment and envy creeps into your hearts. It may be your pride, and we'll talk more about this next week, but maybe your pride is even in your pursuit of humility. You are the most humble person you know. And your small group knows it. Uh, you ask for prayer to be humble. You journal about being humble. It is your default answer for when people ask what God is teaching you. He's teaching me humility again. But deep down inside, you know it's all a charade. Uh, you know the ugly reality of your pride. Grace on campus, no matter what form pride takes and no matter how trivial it seems, the point is that pride, doesn't matter in what, but pride is taking up residence in our hearts. And we ought not to be satisfied with it. Left unchecked, it will have its multiplying effect and it will feed your sinful desires in other areas. There is no pride issue too small no pride issue too trivial to neglect and let fester and let reign in our hearts. Whatever your pride looks like, as we embark on this pursuit of humility in these next few weeks, you and I need to face humility's greatest enemy, our own pride, and we need to face it head on. We need to identify and destroy these footholds of pride. We need to repent and humble ourselves before God. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And, see, and so GOC, just a practical thing, spend some time this week, just you and the Lord, or before you and the Lord, you and just thinking through, what areas and what forms in your life does pride overtake and repent before the Lord, surrender to Him? You know, we've looked at humility's greatest enemy, and we've looked at humility's greatest enemy, pride, in the eye tonight. And I could leave us right here to examine and pray, and I could walk off, and perhaps I would be right to do so. Maybe be a little awkward. But instead, what I want to do as we land the plane here, I want to just offer you a little bit of hope. I want to close by introducing you to somebody else. Humility's greatest friend. You see, if humility's greatest enemy is our own pride, it's our propensity to defy God and try to outdo everyone around us, uh, this dependence on self for the sake of self-exaltation. All of this is by our own doing and our own figuring this thing out. We need help. 
And we need help from humility's greatest friend. It's the gospel. Uh, We need an antidote outside of ourselves, and we find it in the gospel. Uh, Before we go any further in our series, we must realize that our pursuit of humility cannot be apart from the saving grace found in the gospel, the free gift of eternal life for sinners based on no merit of our own. You see, if by our own efforts, left to our own devices, you and I would live a hopeless, helpless existence, either carrying out the desires of the flesh and actively living out the pride that we talked about tonight, or if we did our own version of it and tried really hard, really, really, really hard, we would live in our own vain attempts at humility. We would, under layer upon layer of our own righteousness, at the very core, be living out the same self-sustaining existence of pride. It would just be pride couched in our counterfeit humility. But the gospel gives us hope because the gospel is not something we accomplish. Just listen to Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is all a work of, of God. It's all only by His grace. Friend, if you have not yet believed this good news, if you are still living in your pride tonight in a characteristic way, your life is full of your own self, and in your pride you live only for yourself. If this passage describes you, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to your passions, passing your days in malice and envy against others, hated by others and hating one another. If that is you, turn from your sin and pride and place your faith in Christ. And as Titus 3 says, God will save you. Not because of works done by you in your righteousness. Not by you humbling yourself. That's not how you're saved but according to his own mercy, by the work of the Spirit, Titus 3 shows us, and by merit of Christ alone. So humble yourself, but not as an act of saving yourself, but so that he can save you. To any and all kinds of pride, the gospel is a stop sign that brings your self-achievement to a screeching halt. Only the good news of a Savior 
who has done it all for you can free you from either your overt, unfounded pride or your quiet, unassuming self-dependence. Only the good news of a Savior who lived a perfect life of obedience to God and yet in submission to the Father's will, He died a sinner's death such that the punishment, the, the destruction, the humiliation that was rightfully ours for our pride was placed upon Him. He died for us. He died in our place. He took our punishment upon Him. And instead of the punishment we deserve on that last day, we have His righteousness. We receive His sinless perfection, our filthy rags of sin for His perfect robes of righteousness. It's the great exchange. And so, GOC, a pursuit of humility must be first and foremost understood through this lens. Through the lens of humility's greatest friend, the gospel. That we must humble ourselves, surrender our wills. For those who don't know Christ, maybe for the first time. But for those who do know Christ, time and time again, humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross. This whole series, this whole endeavor is not just so that we would become nicer, kinder, more deferential kinds of people in and of itself. Our pursuit of humility at the core is to behold the wonders of the cross with such deep gratitude for what Christ has done such that every moment we live is with an awareness that we are recipients of God's undeserved mercy and grace found in Christ. That's what makes humility, in our definition, a fundamentally Christian posture. And that already, in and of itself, puts us in our place. It cuts us down to size. It helps us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, because in the gospel, we can remember who we were. And then in the gospel, we can see who we are now. And in the gospel, we can see that it's only by his work that there's a difference between those two things. So let us, as we have tonight, consider seriously humility's greatest enemy, pride, and repent but then let us run for refuge to humility's greatest friend, the gospel of Christ. Let's pray and thank God for the clarity found in his word and the hope found in Christ. Father, thank you for our study tonight. It's a start to our series that only gets worse.